The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. King Herod heard of Jesus and his disciples, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother, when his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We could say that Herod is a man of his word. In honor before his guests, who are kind of like at the Mar-a-Lago of Galilee. They're kind of in a, a vacation place. I shouldn't make the reference. But, he, but um, it's, they're not necessarily on their usual political site, but they've gone for a bit of a vacation to, to celebrate the, the birthday of Herod. I'm not going to retell the story because it's graphic enough. But when we put this story together with our reading from 2 Samuel, we might say that what joins these two stories together is not only celebration and dancing, but we've got a lot of boundary issues going on. So let me open up that first reading just a little bit. Let's look at it. 
you might have noticed that we first are told that the ark has come out of the house of Abinadab. And a great procession is made with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines. And castanets. And then a little bit later, we're told that not only the, the musical instruments have changed, we now have shouting and trumpets, but the ark has come out of the household of somebody else, of Obed Adam. Abinadab, Obed Adam. It's actually not a typo. So how do we have two houses? Well, there's something very important that happened in between. Listen to this. Uh, first, a little bit of background. So <clears throat> the Philistines, not the people of Israel, the Philistines took the ark some decades beforehand. They made off with the ark, the holiest thing to the people of Israel because not only was it crafted in gold with cherubim, according to God's own instructions, but it contained the tablets of the law given to Moses. It contained a sampling of manna that the people fed on in the wilderness. <clears throat> it contained the rod of Aaron that sprouted to reveal who the priesthood should be. It contained a lot of holy things. And the Philistines made off with it. Well, this wasn't your usual loot story. What happens is that any place the ark rests, the people in the surrounding area become sick with tumors, with plague. So they try to move it on to the next town. And the same, things hap same thing happens. And finally, they say, you know what? It's not a good idea for, for us to have this. So they put it on a cart with milk cows who, for some reason, there's, there's something that goes on with calves, but I'm not going to uh, explain all that. Anyway, the, 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 the cows take off. They go in one direction to return the ark to the people of Israel. But that's not all. The Philistines repent for what they have done. And the sign of their repentance is they send not only the ark with all of its holy materials, but they send also cast in gold tumors, which they had developed, and mice who had carried the plague. All right? So they're very clear about the, what the problem was. They're very clear about that. And they give this back to the people they, in a sense, give this back to God with their own offering. And prayers, I believe, for healing, I can only imagine. So the ark stays in the household of Abinadab for 20 years. And then we said last week that when David establishes the city of David, which we now call Jerusalem, it's a political center and it's a, mil and it's a military center but we know that David was anointed to be the king. He's joined the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and now he believes it's time to move the ark to make 
the city of David, the spiritual center, the cultic center, the place of worship, central worship as well. So this is important, that the spirit, religion, politics, and military might are all united. But there's a problem along the way. Now we know that Ahio and Uza, the, the Utsa, the sons of Abinadab, are accompanying the ark. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Utsa reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Now, what would happen if altar guild, remember, just, you know, imagine you're on the altar guild, right? You're up by the altar. Maybe we're gathered around for communion and an earthquake hits. What are, what are you going to do? All right, duck, right, ducking cover. So some of those things are ducking cover. But, you know, I can imagine gay, gay so practical. I think gay, what, she's not even, she was at the 8 o'clock, but she would grab the candles. I know she would. Right, she would, she would keep the candles from falling over and bonking someone on the head. So we can imagine this very human impulse, right? The holiest thing is possibly going to fall off of the cart because the oxen have stumbled. What would you do? Right, up goes the hand. Well, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Utsah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark. And he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry. Another translation might be fearful. Because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Utsah. So that place is called Perez Utsah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Right, so he sees, he has to question, right, whether it's really the right time to be moving the ark. Because what has happened? Somebody has done something very human, very careful, all very good intentions, and has been struck down because he has crossed the boundary. Now, why would that happen? Well, that's a hard one. Could we imagine that God's laws of sanctity are so profound and so strong that the oxen may, may have stumbled, but the ark was really going to be okay. The oxen may stumble. You can read that metaphorically if you want. But God's holiness, God's word, is really going to be okay. So, at the same time, David is fearful of crossing the line. What boundaries should he be, be upholding? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into, into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom. Now we get the name, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Adam and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And then we pick up our reading again. It's all okay. The sign of blessing has come. The ark can be moved 
people have permission. So God, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Adam to the city of David with rejoicing. And the reading goes on. Well, David crosses another line, at least according to his wife, Michal, who is the daughter of Saul. And uh, he, he's in a, a state of undress. She's not happy about this. This comes in a, a few verses later. Because David is exposed in some way to the maiden. So there might be a bit of jealousy there. However, she is also, as we said, Saul's daughter. Said in our reading that she looks and she despises David in his rejoicing. What we have is a transference of power, right? From Saul, who has been king, to David. So the jealousy is not only about the maiden, but perhaps her own line associated with Saul. So David's response to this, he says, You will be childless, and he never goes to her. She dials. She dies childless, securing that the line comes only from him, through him, and not through her, not through the one who is related to Saul. The lines are made definite, even through procreation. And we'll hear more about the blessing of the dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. So when we get to our reading for from the gospel. It begins with this question about who, who is Jesus? Is he Elijah? Is, a, is he a prophet? Is an old? Is he John the Baptist who has come back? Herod has also crossed a line. He is, within his culture, upholding his word. It's a culture of honor and shame, a culture in which hospitality can mean the world. He pledges to give his daughter, who has pleased him, maybe with the wine flowing at the celebration, that he would give up to half the kingdom. Great. But the request comes as something else, something that truly compromises what he has done before in protecting John, in acknowledging John's holiness. And so, he sacrifices or decimates the one who is holy to uphold a local custom. He gives over the truth of the word that John has been preaching to him for the grudge that his wife, whom he should not have married, bears against John. The hospitality, the codes of hospitality are further decimated as the head is presented on the platter. The story is meant to be gruesome. So where are we as a church? We're in a place of negotiating a lot of boundaries. I believe that that's what general convention was about. It wasn't about just a lot of really boring polity or administrative details that maybe only the bishops 
have to deal with. Maybe a record 42 task forces were put together, which will serve the whole church. I have no doubt that some of them will come our way in some shape or form. So what are the boundaries that are being negotiated? Richard will be giving a forum on August 12th, but it won't, our discussions can't be totally encompassed only by that forum. But it will be a good opportunity for him to give you the issues in the way that Richard can be so clear. And I turned on the recorder so he can, re he can correct anything I say today as well. Here are some of the things that have come through the news that I share with you. Prayer book revision. We're not doing a complete overhaul of the prayer book. This book, the 1979 prayer book, is, this is a very particular word, being memorialized. Memorialized. Now, before you think that means that it's going to be buried and have something planted on it, that's not it, all right? Whenever we make Eucharist, we are making a living memory. We are living through memory and making Christ's presence real with us. So this book will remain intact, but some of the Eucharistic prayers will be opened out for gender-inclusive language, so that the default is not, in thinking about God, is not always male. Does that mean that the Our Father will be thrown out? No. <laughs> I don't have the official word on that, but I can't imagine. I really cannot imagine. That's a prayer, that's a prayer of Jesus that comes to us. But our prayers that we write, and before you get too upset, if you're going to get upset, I'd like to tell you that the Armenians have 89 different Eucharistic prayers, all right? So, you know, we have four here, and then we have three in enriching our worship that we use. We have two more in right one, so that's, what is that, four, four plus two plus three, all right? So that's not 89. But what we're given is the possibility of expanding our language, expanding not only our metaphors, but our theology. We are a religion that relies on revelation. And part of our revelation comes through culture, comes through new understandings of justice, comes through new measures of mercy all around us, and it comes through the language that we use and the metaphors that are current. So this is really a time also to not only refresh, but delve into the theologies of the past and come into communion with theologies that are work, at work now. So, for instance, 12th century Anselm wrote about the economy of salvation in a way that Jesus takes on the debt of our sin. And so there's this whole kind of transaction. But the way that that has been read has been to say that Jesus' salvation is only for humankind. The Eastern tradition understands Jesus' salvation being for the whole world, all of creation. And that is the direction 
that Western theologians are going in right now. And so that leads into, before I leave this, leads into remaking our understanding of the care of creation as well. Before I talk about that, I just want to say that it's not just tweaking a few things here and there. As this is memorialized, as historic and operative for all of us, so there's also going to be an opportunity to develop new liturgies all over the country, which is so exciting. Think about what we, think about what we did on Earth Day. We brought in some fresh things. It helped us worship in a new way. Would we do it every Sunday? No. <laughs> but we do it from time to time. And I think that if I can look at our Armenian neighbors, uh, they have Eucharistic prayers for different occasions. It is upon us to call upon God in different ways at different times. We do that through our prayer, right? through praise, through thanksgiving, through petition. We can do it in how we think about or wish to be in union with God and with one another and to serve the world and to care for creation. And so the resolutions about creation about caring for creation, go from everything from taking a stand that we will be part of the Paris Agreement, that, that we will work on reducing our carbon emissions. It's there are resolutions about how we should be looking at how we're looking, how we're working with the land, using the land in our churches, in our very parishes, how we might be planting gardens and doing other creative things. And it's about what sort of language and theology we are incorporating about creation in our very worship. And so the Bishop of California, Mark Andrus, has for years been saying, when you say the baptismal covenant, you're also making a pledge to the care of creation, not just respecting the dignity of every human being, which is vital, but also the dignity and sacredness of creation. There are a whole host of gender issues from being truthful about sexual abuse and economic exploitation and perhaps minimal attention to domestic violence within the church. What those who have been on the margins, who have not been hurt, are bringing into the center of the church's care. And that applies to working for racial reconciliation. Again, the attention to language. We are no longer talking about anti-racism training. We are working on racial justice, racial healing, racial reconciliation. And I will say my pledge to the church, and Richard, you'll be listening at some point, that all of this applies to the children as well, to the children and the youth. Children were mentioned in terms of taking a stand against the separation of migrant families. Children were mentioned in that somebody breastfeeding who serves in the House of Deputies or the House of Bishops can never be shunned from the floor. I say, if that had to be put into a resolution, there's probably more work to be done. But, you know, at least it is resolved now. I want to know, where else are children mentioned? Where else are youth mentioned? In the $5 million that was set aside 
for racial reconciliation, working on racial reconciliation. Is some of that earmarked specifically for curricula, for gatherings, for formation of children and youth? How can we be part of that work and how can we continue as we do in this church to bring our children and youth central? Which is a fulfilling of a fulfillment of our baptismal covenant. And that's where I come back to the Book of Common Prayer. That this is not going anywhere. Because the understanding is that we have not fully delved into the richness of the theology and ecclesiology of the Eucharistic prayers or the baptismal rite of the baptismal covenant. And so the work that we do on gender issues, on immigration issues, on violence in the streets, on racial reconciliation, on care for the earth, still comes out of our baptismal covenant. Let us live out our baptism. Let us expand our tents to the east and the west and the north and the south. Let us observe holy boundaries. And let us continue in the very testing of boundaries to discern God's will. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.